This is a poster I, I found uh, when, uh, walking past a large, expensive resort in Maui. They said I could take one, so I did. Shows a very attractive woman here. You can't see it there with her parrot. Ava, yoga instructor, star of TV, DVDs, and author of number one ranked website, Hatha Yoga Lesson. And it says here, Aston Ka'anapali Shores, you can come up and look at this later if you want. Aston Ka'anapali Shores Resort presents chocolate yoga. <laughs> chocolate yoga, an exercise concept where inner peace starts with the stomach is finding an enthusiastic audience among America's fit and famished. The practice combines the natural high of stretching with the endorphin high of eating chocolate (laughs) to facilitate relaxation, health, and happiness. A typical class begins with a sacramental offering of raw chocolate, which is homemade from organic cocoa sweetened with honey. It sounds great. (laughs) Participants are invited to start nibbling, focus, this is the mindfulness part, focusing on the sensations that unfold as the full expression of the chocolate works its way from the mouth to the body. Controlled consumption has been proven to improve blood flow, reduce blood pressure. Warning, eating raw chocolate and doing yoga may cause you to have the best day ever. So that was this. And, you know, really it sounded great. I, I wanted to go. It didn't work out on my schedule. <laughs> and so that reminded me, speaking of chocolate, I just wanted to keep the chocolate theme for a moment, that um, I like chocolate and uh, I like dark chocolate. And uh, I have a particular dark chocolate that it's really the only dark chocolate I eat. And uh, I used to not have a sweet tooth at all. Just didn't think about it. And I actually ended up talking about how you condition your mind. I started eating a bit of dark chocolate every day because of the health benefits. And it really conditioned, uh, I mean, thinking of it now, a little bit. It's not that much craving. I can let it go. But I could, you know, if I'd eat one now, I can think, you know, oh, that'd be nice to have one. So, and the kind I like are called doves. They're little individuals. Some of you know them. And if you want, um, I was going to bring the bag to show you. I've got them in my room. Uh, <laughs> I actually wasn't going for a laugh. I bring them, I bring chocolates with me. And actually, once it's any of you who uh, who uh, sit retreats at IMS and on the East Coast, they're, they're, I don't know if they still do it, but on the three month retreat, it would be like about a month in. A few yogis would start every you know a few zafus would have chocolates on on their on them. You'd come in, and then every, they'd kind of get get around. Or you'd find one on your shoe, and it just and it started to be a thing, right? That happened. I think probably maybe people still do it. And so my wife had once given me some chocolates to bring to do that, and I think I ate one bag. <laughs> and yeah, I didn't want to be too greedy, so a few I would share with others. So, but these doves, not only is it uh, is it is it um, good quality chocolate. But also, in case you just want to know from a health point of view, the Mars Chocolate Company has developed one that's particularly strong, a version of cocoa, particularly strong in the flavonoids, and it's called Cocoa Pro. So this not only is my favorite taste, but it's Cocoa Pro, so it's even, well, so I can tell you, leave me a note if you want uh, to know more about that. What they do is each individual wrapper has a little saying in it, 
And so I don't collect them except as part of this. I just keep them here. I've, I've given this talk a couple of times before, so I just collect them. So let me just read you a few. And just keeping in mind the chocolate yoga, and just let the feeling of them come in here, right? <laughs> Find your passion. You're allowed to do nothing. <laughs> Decorate your life. You know what? You look good in red. <laughs> Go to your special place. I'll just read a few more. Learn something from everyone you meet. Dare to love completely. If they can do it, you know you can. <laughs> and on and on. I've Listen to your heartbeat and dance. So I, anyway, it just goes like that. So hearing this, you know, it's, it has a certain feel. To, you know, the chocolate yoga. And to me, the feeling is, it's like, it's okay. Things are going to work out. We can be okay. We can be happy. Life is good. You're going to be okay. That's kind of the feeling, right? Then we come to Buddhist teachings. (laughs) Characteristic of all existence is suffering. Whatever uh, comes together is destined to fall apart. It all ends in disillusion. It's kind of like, it's the opposite. It's it's saying, it's not going to be okay. (laughs) Of course, it's giving us a way out. It's saying, the world of conditions can be okay in a moment. You can go to Maui and go to the chocolate yoga and assuming other conditions, you're not having a, your health's okay and those who you love. You're not in a meltdown with your partner or in a meltdown because you don't have a partner or in a meltdown because you want to get away from having a partner. (laughs) Right? And you're not freaking out about politics or global warming or no, and you know, a lot, all the conditions are right and everything's okay. In that moment, it, 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 you know what? I, if I were to go back and were to see that, I would, I would do it. You know, it would probably be relaxing and healing, and it sounds pretty nice. So, yeah, Buddhism's telling us um, you don't have to push this away. Let's not expect more of it than it's capable of offering. That's what it's saying. It's not saying, you know, it all ends in, excuse my language, all ends in shit. That's not the point. It's saying, see the limitations of seeking our well-being in circumstances. That's what, it, that's what Buddhism is pointing to. And, and I reflect on these Buddhist teachings. It's a lot during the day, every day. It's, it's, it's central to my whole life. And I still, you know, it's, I don't know. Maybe this is wrong view. I don't know what some of the renunciate monks would say, but um, I still uh, eat my piece of chocolate every day. And sometimes I'll just sneak a second one. <laughs> so in Buddhism, what, we, what can happen is we can be told, you can hear this word about being uh, non-attached, Right? or breaking attachments, right? I don't want to be attached to, to my chocolate or whatever it is. And that's an okay word and it gets used, but I think there's a danger because there's a connotation we can have with being non-attached. 
which means we're supposed to be detached. And being detached actually can be okay, but we don't want it to fall into the sense of being disconnected because being detached can have a connotation for some of us as like there's awareness, or I'll just use conventional language. Me, I'm here up in the head, and dispassionately with some space in between, disconnected, viewing what, you know, I see whatever the experiences are, but um, they don't touch me, right? So we've disconnected from experience, we've disconnected from ourselves, right? That can be the sense here. And I don't think that's what uh, serves us well, and I want to talk about this some uh, tonight. Actually, we are physiologically, we are, as human beings, hardwired to attach. As newborns, and uh, they've done some animal studies, we also know there were some uh, infants in, I think, some orphanages, and it might have been in Eastern Bloc countries before the Iron Curtain came down, and uh, who they had food, water, warmth, shelter, but they didn't get the love, the connection, and they didn't thrive. I don't know what exactly the manifestation of not thriving is. But I think if you don't get, you, you have to have the physical connection, the love, to help what we call healthy attachment to thrive. Now, most of us have had, if you know much about attachment theory, I don't want to get into that too much, but most of us have, have probably had at least enough attachment to get by Right? And we may have had, uh, depending on our parents, so we had enough to, to live and grow, but we may have had ambivalent attachment depending on our parents. Or parents, we really didn't get the healthy attachment, and it can produce, not only do we need it physiologically, but psychologically, um, you know, it can be a lifetime of work um, untangling those uh, knots. And I want to be, you know, I hope I'm not triggering anyone off because in a group this size, there are plenty of us in here, and I'm. Uh, a recovering, uh, my mother was, uh, was be what you'd call, um, well, she doesn't listen to my talk, so I'm okay, uh, <laughs> uh, ambivalent attachment. Right. We need to attach. How does that fit in with these Buddhist teachings of being non-attached or detached? Since just as it's, it's built into our DNA, our bones, this, our cells to attach. Right. And I, w- I want to make a distinction here between attachment and clinging. And to give you the, the uh, feeling of that, if I were to tell my wife I'm detached from her, uh, it's just not going to go over very well. <laughs> if I tell her I'm not clinging to her, she appreciates it. You feel the difference there? Yeah, It's a real difference there. So what is it we're doing here on retreat? We, you know, we get into our meditation posture, whatever that is. We close our eyes. Some people, you know, perhaps you could have your eyes open some, but mostly we tend to close our eyes. And we're bringing our, we're cultivating steadiness, concentration, heightening mindfulness and clear comprehension, and turning that power of, of awareness and attention into our own minds and bodies. We're not disconnecting, we're connecting deeply with what's going on, right? It's actually connection that's happening here. So we, uh, we don't want to be detached. We want to connect without being detached. 
And maybe I'll use a couple different words. Rather than detach, disentangled. See, there's a different sense there. I can be connected, intimate. And we talk about suffusing in the body. The level of intimacy with our minds and bodies that come in these deep samadhi states, and this is part of where the deeper insights come and how concentration and insight are, are blended. It's, it's just on a profound level of intimacy and connection. But we want to keep uh, not become entangled. You get, you get the feeling of that? We want to have a clarity. We want to bring in an equanimity, a steadiness, a non-reactivity. Right? Or another is to become disenchanted, not disconnected. So disenchanted is an interesting word because uh, people often, it, it, I think in these days in our culture, it can have sort of a negative, like, oh, you know, I thought it was going to be great, and I'm feeling kind of disenchanted. It's like let down. But what does the word really mean to be disenchanted? It means not enchanted. Well, you know the fairy tales when you know they cast a spell, and you, you've been enchanted. And what it means you're, you're in an all you can't see reality. And when the spell's broken, you're no longer enchanted. You're back to reality. Right? Or it's and just bringing it back to reality. If any of you have ever been in love. And, of course, we can stay deeply in love and, and have a clarity. But there's a kind of in love that can happen, some of you may have experienced, when, say, you meet this first new person that's all excited, sitting, and, you know, you're really in love, and every little thing they do is cute and adorable, and whatever, three, four months later, those same things are kind of annoying. <laughs> your perspective, I mean, I don't know if it really, but, you know, your perspective shifts. Maybe there was a little enchantment there that it was happening. So this idea of breaking the spell and to see clearly, that's Vipassana, right? And when that happens, the clearer we are, the more we strengthen the concentration, the mindfulness, the clear comprehension goes along with the mindfulness. Actually, the more deeply we connect because we're not caught in aversion or clinging. We're just able to be present. So as the practice unfolds, the connection parts actually continues to deepen. Um, once my wife came home from a retreat, she's a long-time practitioner to lots of retreats, month, several months long, and several months, retreats of several months long and lots of 10 days and stuff. And she came home from one, I think it was like a six-week or two-month retreat. She came back. I said, um, how was your retreat? And she came in and said, I don't think these retreats are all that great, all that they're cracked up to be. And I just thought, well, you know, is she, is she sort of kidding? Is she serious? And I asked her, and she said, well, maybe a little of both. And so I asked her what she means, and she said, and I think she was being a little humorous, but she said, you know, do I have to, like, feel everything? And, like, there was stuff going on. Like, I didn't want to know what was in there, and now I have to feel everything. <laughs> And it can feel that way as we start to wake up. Actually, what I want to talk about now is an aspect of practice and of that is, you could think of it as um, making conscious that which has been hidden. It's another way to think about we're doing, what we're doing. And it, uh, Temple was talking about it in a sense when he was uh, talking about the P and we keep getting more P's and all that. And, and so um, it's similar, right? And... Um, 
you know, as we start to become more attuned to ourselves and our perception is more refined and our ability to notice and see gets clearer and clearer, we're going to see places of incredible beauty and how beautiful our minds and hearts can be that we just had no idea were even possible. It happens. It's going to happen. And we're also going to find places, just like my wife was talking about, that we didn't want to know was in there. But let me ask you a question. If it's in there, wouldn't you rather know it than not? Well, actually, I don't know the answer. Another thing my wife said, uh, it, she was kind of on a roll. This was in the... In the <laughs> she, she, again, I, this was being, she was kind of getting a little more humorous about it, but she said, you know, maybe what's best is we just go through life and we don't feel anything. We're just immersed in our work and our relationship. We're not thinking about the transitory nature of life. We're just going about our business kind of unconscious and we don't have to be thinking, contemplating that it's going to end or that we're going to die, and you're just perfectly blissful, and then, yeah, just before you die, maybe you get like one moment of, oh, shit, but then you die, and it's... <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and um, maybe that's a lot uh, <laughs> easier on us. And, of course, it doesn't work that way, because the, our condition patterns are still working on us whether we're aware of them or not even the deeply unconscious or subconscious places. If we don't know, still that, that effect um, um, is still there. So it's, it's a part of what we're doing is it, it serves us well that these parts come up. One thing that can start to happen as we um, start to awaken more some of you uh, may, already, may have experienced this in your life. It can cause dramatic shifts in our lives. We start to get in touch with deeper intentions or deeper motivations or realize that, wow, you know, I've been hanging out with my buddies in the sports bar, my college buddies, and it feels great. And I've been doing it. And all of a sudden we realize, wow, I didn't, just didn't notice how empty it is. What do I really want my life to be about in the deepest and highest sense? Right? What do I really want it to be about? And old patterns, can st- old ways can start to drop away and it can be very um, disquieting. Right? It can upset everything. It can upset relationships or and friendships or the kind of work we're doing or... Um, and maybe we don't know where to turn, what to do. The old's falling away and we're kind of left. So this can happen. I'm not saying it's going to, but we may find ourselves, right? As, we, as, we're, as our lives are about something different. But we still have, you can't just let go of all the old. So that can happen. So we just want to, um, you know, we need a lot of kindness for ourselves if, if we find that happen. We can feel stuck or oppressed by our circumstances. And if that happens, that's the place where we need to bring more of the discernment because, um, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm awakening to the Dharma and what I need to do 
is what does that look like? Well, it means I live in a cave and I meditate 24 hours a day, but I've got you know, a spouse and three kids. It doesn't mean you throw away right, and create that suffering. It's then we have to come to um, some peace with, well, what are the circumstances of my, of my life? What, what, did, what did life dish up? How do I use that? And then not just giving it lip service. One of the things we're doing here in the West, we're involved in this, is great experiment. And I think it's well underway, but it's only been a few decades. You know, that sort of the traditional Asian model, and this isn't 100%, but just sort of the stereotype is, you know, the monastics are the real practitioners. And by the way, we don't want to, I want to be very respectful of the monastics, but, you know, lots of monastics are not practitioners, so we, but there's two, but so we don't want to over romanticize it. But you know, the real practitioners are the monastics, and then the lay people. You know, they're devout and they come and they make offerings and they're very sincere, but they don't really do the practice. And here in the West, we don't want to just read about people getting enlightened. We want to get enlightened too. I mean, you're here on a retreat doing that. That's true. Or, or if you don't use the term enlightenment, it's whatever that is for you. We want to really taste the this depth of liberation and awakening. We want to come to understand meditative states and skillful means and freeing our hearts and minds and all the whole map, the whole landscape. And I don't see anyone here in robes in this room. Right? We're lay people in the world. So it's an interesting question for us. How do we, uh, you know, uh, what's possible for us in the midst of, of our lives? And it's not for someone else to find out and tell us. We are the living experiment. Right? Just as we are the students of the previous generation, we are the elders for the next generation. It's not anybody else. It's you. So it's for us then to... Uh, Sometimes we don't know the way. We have to find the way. Um, But sometimes in the midst of our lives, not to feel oppressed by it. But I think it's it's, it's just a thrilling time that we live in. You know, these days... Uh, we can read the teachings. There have been good translations in all these different traditions. The teachers come here and we get to be exposed to them. The quality of instruction is every bit as good here as you can get anywhere in Asia. And you ask anybody, Jack and Joseph, they all will say that. And not only that, but if you've got a passport and a visa and a credit card, you can be there in 24 hours from now. Go there. I mean, we just have so much opportunity. The internet... So we have all this supports we need. It's really a, a thrilling opportunity. So rather than feeling like, oh, I'm gonna go, we're going to talk at the end of the retreat about taking this back out into our daily lives, keeping it alive, what does that look like? And some of you, you know, experienced people have bumped up and worked with that. And for some people new, uh, a few people have already asked me, well, what, how do I keep this alive when I go into my life? You know, I'm busy. I have this. So we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, don't worry. Not only can we sometimes, if we start waking up, feel oppressed by our circumstances, just the human condition can be oppressive that we find ourselves in. Yeah. How did we get here? What's going on? And, and it just feels like, you know, and, and here I am, 
been practicing five years, 10 years, 20 years, and my, my same neurosis just keeps rolling around, and we're trying our best. And, you know, when we just take any Dharma topic, death, we reflect on it. It's, it's one of these topic themes that the Buddhists suggested we reflect on daily. It informs everything we do in the Dharma. And we know ahead of time what's going to happen. Right? And, when, and we know that when it's our time to die or when loved ones die, it's nothing going wrong. It's just what, hap- it's hap- what happens. We know, right? Have you ever known anyone for whom that didn't happen? No. We know ahead of time. And we practice strengthening equanimity and opening our hearts and learning to, to, you know, that we sit here on the cushion working with the little aches and pains. And sometimes it's not the little, I understand. And hopefully that gives us a better chance when the, when the, big, the big ones hit. We don't know how it's going to be. I remember uh, I was teaching with Jack Cornfield down at Yucca Valley uh, one year in the retreat. And that was with him and Howie Cohn, another spirit rock teacher. And, and we had taken a van um, back and to the airport, and I had my backpack. I'd left it in the van. The van took off, and it had my wallet, my airplane tickets, and my cell phone. It's just, it was all there. And I couldn't even remember the name of the shuttle service that took it or anything. And um, so I'm sitting there in the airport, and it's like, and now I and I'm not making any great claims that it's not like you know I can never be affected by anything. But for whatever reason, conditions came together, and I was perfectly. I was noticing my mind. It was just amazing. Was I was just perfectly at peace, as if all was well. I was about to get on the airplane, and it was like. And when I noticed that, it was it was it was really amazing. And I was sitting there. I was like, okay. And then fortunately, Jack walked by and I said, uh, Jack, uh, what was the name of that? Uh, and he told me, and I called them, and that driver looked, and sure enough, the pack was there, and they delivered it, worked out. And I told Jack this. I said, you know, it's amazing. Um, like, the mind's just not moving. You know, I, I, I didn't even know if I'd see you or what I was going to do, and the mind's not moving. And, I, and then I said to Jack, well, you know, I guess if I can't do it now, and then Jack finished my sentence, yeah, what are we going to do when it's time to die? <laughs> So we start working on it the best we can. And having said all that, we still know the human condition, how hard and painful it is when we do hit these difficulties and it is time our own death or loved ones go. We're human beings. And it can open us to the poignancy of the situation we find ourselves in. You know? that we're doing everything and we're reflecting. And, and even at the time of the Buddha, the, uh, the sutta that has the last few months of the, of the Buddha's life and just after he died, called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And as it's recorded, after he died, some of the monastics, some of them had said were enlightened and their minds were unperturbed, but many, and these were people you know, who must have had amazing karma and were practicing in person with the Buddhists, they must have been amazing practitioners, were crying and wailing and the masters left us. The story goes, one of them, one of the enlightened monks said, what's the use of all this crying? Didn't the master say all things that, that come into being must pass away? But I think the, the important, to me, that's not the main teaching. The teaching is these were people who had practiced seriously, deeply, had thrown their whole lives over 
in the presence of the Buddha, who must have been an amazing teacher in presence. And still, the Buddha died. They didn't lose their humanity. It hurt. As we start to awaken more and open, it becomes more immediately clear, not just as a concept, but as part of our lived experience in the moment, that our strategy, the way we've been going about attaining happiness, mostly unconsciously, probably for many of us, for most of our lives, isn't serving us necessarily so well. And we start to actually being aware of that tendency in mind to chase after uh, more experiences we want. And, and we're all doing that, right? Everybody here in this room is trying to have more pleasant experiences and less unpleasant, right? We, I think we were talking about this before. Is there anyone in the room <laughs> <laughs> trying to have, right, less of what you don't want? I mean, less of what you want and more of what you don't want. No, of course not. We're human beings. I don't know if you can really stop doing that, right? If you take a little amoeba, single cell, doesn't even have a nervous system or a brain, whatever, if it likes the light, it'll kind of go to the light. If it doesn't like light, it'll kind of move away. Live, it's built into being a living being. We don't have to stop being human beings, but what does it mean to start disentangling? So coming to a place where we have more freedom and choice. And it's why in the, in the uh, insight practice, we, uh, an interesting place to work is there's sense contact. We're having some kind of experience. And then we bring the mindfulness in to notice before the aversion or the craving kicks in, just to notice, oh, it's unpleasant. We can get a, a wedge of mindfulness in. And the tendency might be there to pull away or to move towards or to hold on or to push it away. But we have some choice and freedom in there. We can start to, uh, we're disentangled, so we're not just at the effect. We haven't stopped being a human being, but we can even notice that that's that's how our minds work. Oh, yeah, pleasant comes. Isn't that interesting? Mind wants to go towards it. Unpleasant comes. Mind's just moving away. Wow, does it every time. (laughs) And underneath that is the place of peace. You know, the Buddha taught, right? He's, his teaching came down, sort of the pith teaching that he taught suffering and the end of suffering, and that's all. And we hear these teachings, and it sounds good, and I don't think anybody would not want to come to an end of suffering. As we become more aware, the way opens up to us more. Because the way's not out there, the way's in here. It's not making life look like what we want. It's shifting our relationship, how we relate to what's going on, right? One thing that happens and we need to be aware of is that um, as we start to make more and more conscious 
we're more finely attuned to what's around us and we're more aware of all the layers in us so we become more conscious of, of psychological patterns, emotions, maybe places that had been knotted up in our bodies somehow and there's may or may not be connected to something, just so many levels. Both the pleasant and the unpleasant, and this is something to be aware of, continue to get stronger. The unpleasant can continue to get stronger as we just open up to, like we're saying, layers that we just hadn't seen and are become more revealed. Maybe an old grief that we had no idea was there. Or some deep dharma pain in the body that comes up, right? And we can fall into despair and all kinds of things. I'm not saying it's going to, but it can happen. So we need to know and be able to meet that with equanimity. We don't want to get too jerked around by it, is, the, is, is where we're aiming. And the pleasant, so we don't want to, you know, let's not get overly excited when you see a light, or I got some bliss. I actually remember the first time meditating, when I, when I very first started meditating, sitting in a Dharma hall like this, and everybody was so still, going to like a weekly group somewhere. This was in the like, early 1970s. I was sitting there, and I was, you know, my body was hurting, and I couldn't, I just was sitting there trying, I didn't, couldn't do anything, and, and I just thought, Look at them all. They all look like Buddhists, right? Everybody's blissed out but me. <laughs> and then I remember when something, st- I mean, it's always something happening, but what I mean is, is what I, you know, the, I started getting some whatever concentration or meditative states. I remember the first time it was like, I was so excited. And it was, you know, it was kind of sweet looking back. I was young and I was very idealistic and naive and it's, it was just, it, I was so happy. Uh, and it was just a little light, something where I could actually feel. I'd kind of just that first aha dropping in. And so we can delight in that. And I don't want to diminish that at all. I actually think there's that part of delighting is important. And we can have appreciation too. Yeah. So I'm not meaning to undercut it. But um, as long as when things inevitably change. We don't think, oh, what happened? It's all falling apart. Remember what I was saying earlier? Nothing went wrong. It's just changed. It's just this now. It just changed. Now it's this. Oh, unconcentrated mind, knee pain. We can meet them all equally. It's often taught that the foundation of meditation practice is sila. It's the Pali word often translated as morality. And we often think of sila, the common way it's taught in what's called the five precepts that we took here. So it's like a, it's not just a code, but it's, it's a, um, a felt sense or an attitude. And there are, you know, for monastics, sila is many, many, you know, several hundred rules that um, um, define how we act from everything, how you walk, you know, you don't let your arms swing around, you have kind of uh, certain um, 
decorum and how you, you don't eat with your lips, smacking your lips is one. And there's certain things, right? And, and there's a lot of other rules. And for lay people, you know, there's five precepts. Or some people take more than five precepts. But the basic idea is guidance to help us live and act, speak, be in a way that creates less harm, less suffering for ourselves and others, and more well-being for ourselves and others. That's the idea. And so sometimes we actually need a structure of, of like, guidelines. I don't like to call them rules to, to help us. And, and sometimes maybe we just need, you know, just to, to be really in touch with the spirit of sila, to live in a way that's non-harming. And, and we don't know what the rule is necessarily, but we know we're bringing our best intention. And so this is often talked about as, that's the foundation. Before you start meditating, you have to have a good foundation in your sila. Because, you know, your mind's not going to settle if you're, if, you're, if you're not living in a, you know, if you're creating harm and all this. And you've probably heard this a lot. I think there's something more foundational than sila. This is not the Buddha. I, I'm just giving you my own. But I um, um, feel very clear about this. And that is more foundational than sila is self-compassion. And it's very important because we are all sincere. Yes, we're all a mix of motivations. You know, there's no such thing as 100% pure motivation because by definition, until we're all arahats ourselves, there's still places of greed, hatred, and delusion that can be in the mind to greater or lesser degrees. Okay. So that's fine. But we all, ha- so we, don't, we all, though, have sincere intentions, sincere aspirations. We apply ourselves the best we can. We're really trying. And we see how beautiful the mind can be, but we also see how hard it can still be sometimes. That sometimes we're suffering. And sometimes we don't see the way out. We don't know the way. Or sometimes we do see that there's a clinging, and yet somehow it still can't let go. It's like that image of holding the hot coal that John Cha talks about. right? And he said, you know, if you saw that it was burning, you know, you put a hot coal, you know what he has to tell you? That it just drops away. And sometimes we're acting in a way that we think is leading to happiness and actually is creating suffering and we don't see it. And so we're still burning ourselves. But there are times for all of us where we know that we've just contracted around something. It's got us hooked. We see that we're suffering and it can't let go. And that's the time. Or it, maybe we just are confused or we don't know. Or for whatever reason, there's some, we, we suffer. Trying our best. For those times, we need a lot of compassion for ourselves. And so developing self-compassion, I think, is foundational. If we don't know how to do it, that's not the talk is. You know, maybe there's a good book by the Dalai Lama on it or, uh, you know, whatever. Listen to other talks. But I wanted just to plant that seed. It's so important. And it's also important because even if we undertake sila with, uh, 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 sincerely, we can fall in any aspects of our lives sometimes, and it's, 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 it's sad, we can fall into adversarial relationships with ourselves and our own experience. And rather than meeting sila with and, and having some appreciation for our sincere, our beautiful, our good intention. We meet it with 
self-loathing or self-criticism or I'm not doing it or I can't even do that right and, and we see everything that's wrong and broken and how much we're screwing it up. Right? Rather than, and, and seeing all the ways where we fall short. Let me tell you so you'll know ahead of time. There's going to be times where you fall short with Sila. You're, you're not going to just fall into to it perfectly. Whatever that means. You may say something unskillful sometime. Ill will may arise in your heart or mind. I remember being on a long retreat and um, I, I don't know, I was maybe six months into this retreat as I sat for it was a year long and I was about a, six months in and I'd just been, uh, the heart and mind just beautiful. It, and one morning I woke up, I was just burning in hate. I have no idea where that came from. It was just like, <laughs> I was shocked. Very painful. And everybody I would pass, most people in their rooms practicing, but I'd walk and someone passed. I, I don't even want to tell you what was going on in my mind towards them. I hope they didn't, you know, those psychic powers that, uh, Temple, was, <laughs> that Temple was talking about. I was thinking, okay, I, I hope they don't. <laughs> okay, he's only been here for three weeks. He doesn't have psychic powers. <laughs> it was nasty. And I was trying all kinds of strategies. First thing is the mind would go, someone would walk, and it was all inside my mind. The mind would go, rah, 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 and then, then it would just turn on myself, and I would just yell at myself, Shankman! <laughs> that didn't work. I was trying everything. Meta, and finally I got in this place, I said, I, it finally it occurred to me, I need some just compassion for myself. I'm just suffering. Because I didn't want to have a mind like that. I couldn't find the way. I didn't know what else to do. And so for me, I don't work with phrases that much, but I usually work with the felt sense around Brahma Viharas. But I opened to some phrases. Just, and my phrase was simple. It wasn't, may I be free from the suffering. It was, it was just the... Excuse me, I just swallowed a bug. <laughs> Good bug. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, actually, I'm just realizing we have the door open there with the lights that's bringing them in. Probably not, yeah. Um, but it's a trade-off. We're, we're cooler in here, but then the bug factor is, goes up. Yeah, so it's a trade-off. And somehow, it was a simple statement of, this is suffering, but the tone of it was with kind of a compassionate tone. This is suffering, Suffering feels like this. Oh, it's really, you're really suffering, like I would to a good friend. And it softens something enough where I could... Um, I'm going to give you this one. I have water. I'm okay. Oh, okay. I put yeah. that bug in there. All is well, but thank you for your good intention. <laughs> I, I, no, but I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I see that's a uh, really wholesome, beautiful intention, to, to, and I feel, uh, I feel that. Um, but I got the bug out, so... <laughs> um, so... Um, that softened things enough, bringing the compassion. And then I was able to find the way. And the way I happened, just to finish the story, the way I found it out is I was able to, to not be so identified and see that, I mean, it was happening to me. It was personal in that sense, but it was some kind of pattern that was happening to me. It wasn't me doing it. And I could let go. And I, so then I just finally sat on eating lunch. I finally said to my mind, okay, fine. If that's the way you're going to be about it, just go right ahead. We're just going to go back to the room. We're going to lie down on the bed. And you just burn in hate. See how, see how you like that. And so, you know, so we went back. And I just let it burn. Felt it, felt it. But was, I was disentangled. It washed through a little later. 
I don't know where it came from, where it went. And heart and mind were open and went about my business. The self-compassion gave me the space to find the, the way out. Instead of being so at odds with myself, just, just compassion, and then it relaxed a little. So I just wanted to offer that kind of as an ending. It's part of, you know, base, basically end with all of Dharma practice can be thought of as coming to learn ever more deeply how to let go, how to be free of clinging, and when there is clinging, how to let go of our clinging. And so this part of, of, of revealing or uncovering what had been hidden is in service of that. It's not for its own sake, just to go digging and delving in. It's, it, un, it unfolds more and more of what's driving us. And we also become more attuned to the inner wisdom that's been hidden too. It's not just all your wounds. It's your inner teacher, your inner knowing, your inner wisdom that's been hidden. And so that clears too. And it can start to show us the way. It, it, we, we, we're more, the knowing is there. The pathway opens more and more of the time. So thank you for your kind attention this evening. I know we've had, been in a few different places tonight. I hope that worked okay. Um, yeah. So let's just sit quietly for a f- few moments, and then we'll ring the bell to end. invite you to take a few moments just before I ring the bell. Um, perhaps you've already, you know, in a talk, sometimes our awareness can go out into the space or the room. If so, to just bring your awareness back into your body, states of your heart and mind, just whatever's going on in your experience. It might not be much or maybe some things during your day or some things from this talk either you like, didn't like, whatever, and maybe it's hot, just whatever you're feeling. And noticing not only your experience, but how are you relating, how are you being with your experience? And seeing if there can be a sense of allowing or letting be. It's seeing if if in the midst of this there can be a real letting go. And if there's a place in you that can't let go around some difficulty, then perhaps bringing a little kindness or compassion to yourself and a sense of allowing or letting that be some acceptance for that. So thank you for listening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.